0: Asalaam Alaikum Rahmatullah Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin and more. Cryptocurrency has continuously made headlines in recent years, but despite the popularity of the subject, it seems like by the time there is consensus on the issue, we would have either missed out or many Muslims would need to cleanse their income right now. What should Muslims know about investing in cryptocurrency? How can we be mindful of Islamic values while trying to keep up with the latest trends in Islamic finance or in finance in general? And what can we do to take ownership of our financial futures? Welcome to a new episode of Double Take, a podcast by Yaqeen Institute about the questions and ideas around Islam and Muslims that give us pause. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear and you'd like to share some feedback with us, please let us know your feedback directly in the link in the show notes. I'm Mohammed Zahd and today we're exploring how Muslims fit into the world of cryptocurrency. And with me is Sheikh Joe Bradford, one of the leading experts on issues involving Muslims and finance in North America. Sheikh Joe holds a Master of Islamic Law from the University of Medina and has studied traditionally in the Muslim world for the past 20 or so years. He was a VP and senior Sharia consultant for Al rajhi Bank, the largest Islamic bank in the Middle East. He's the co-founder of MyWaseya.com for Islamic estate planning. And he's a Sharia advisor for Zoya Finance for Islamic investing. He's also the creator of Money Coach for Islamic financial coaching and consulting. Enjoy the episode. Salaam Alaikum, Sheikh Joe, and welcome to DoubleTech.
1: Tech. Salaam wa rahmatullahi wa
0: Sheikh. I'm angry. I'm angry because in 2016, I was in Madrid with a few friends. And they were they were raving on about Bitcoin and how it's the future. And at that point, the price was hovering at around $400. And I asked my Islamic finance guru friends whether I'm good to buy. And the general response was absolutely no. It's a gray area at best and stay away from the gray area. They mentioned that Bitcoin was developed for the black market and that it was Uh, It was a currency, if you like, that had no serious proper backing. And so I plead the fifth as to what I did in 2016. (laughs) Uh, But but I'm angry because it's 2022. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I need to make money. And it wasn't too long ago when Bitcoin peaked at almost $70,000. And so it seems to me that if you were to poll different scholars, even today, in 2022, about the rulings on crypto, is it halal? Is it haram? There is no clear answer or a consensus. Uh, by the time there is a consensus, we would have missed the boat. So my first question to you is, why is it the case that it takes us that long to come up with a ruling on crypto?
1: Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a very good question. And I think that it can be answered in two parts. Um, one has to do kind of with the community dynamics of scholarship and the other has to do with the the scholar himself uh, the latter is probably easier to answer and quicker in that that to rule on something is contingent on conceptualizing it and so when you're talking about something which is abstract like a digital currency um, there is always going to be a bit of a runway that's needed in order to you know figure out what it is how it's going to be used how it's going to be issued um who's behind it uh you know uh, and, and and so it's not it's not strange to find scholars taking cautious stances and to essentially kind of place I don't want to say place their bets, but to take, to, to, uh, to, 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 to be more cautious when giving fatwa on things. As there's a general usooli, you know, as far as the, 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 the principles of Islamic jurisprudence go, most scholars said that the mufti is to, his job is to essentially give fatwa with what would be safest in the Akhirah. Now, does that mean safest in the akhirah for the mufti or for the mustafdi, Um, for the one asking for the fatwa or the one giving it? Generally, they say both. There is a minority, though, that would say that has to do with acts of worship where you do what's safest for, um, for the, the mustaftis, the person asking the fatwas, you know, um, a quest, a question or, or, or situation in the akhirah. And as far as mu'amalat or civil dealings, then you go you do the opposite you do what is safest for their for their dunya um, as the base ruling for all things is that they are permissible until proven otherwise.
0: That's exactly the point. Like I was always taught that things are halal until they're haram. So if you're saying that it's better to be risk averse and, you know, protect your akhirah, then that seems a little bit contradictory, you know.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it it, so and, and this kind of goes into the you know there's there's a lot of kind of interconnected points here. Um, that certainly is it. So the retort to, to that would be, well, yes, we agree that everything which is um, the base ruling for everything that's permissible until proven otherwise, but we're being told that Bitcoin is used in the black market. We're being told that it was started by some guy whose you know identity is not even known. We're being told. Uh, XYZ, and so that incorrect information in the beginning lent to people uh, and to scholars even opining on it. Now, the this the, the scholar who opines on something that's brought to him is not necessarily to blame for answering according to the information presented to him. We we can't absolve ourselves as individuals and in the whole chapters of Ijtihad and. Uh, al-mufti a, a al mustafti in books of usul al fiqh mentioned this that the person asking the question does have a moral responsibility to present information about what they're asking about in a clear concise manner and so I think one of the issues is that much of the information wasn't being presented uh, in a technical sense that scholars could decipher um, And the other the other is that is that many of the scholars would say, for example, take take information from a trusted party or see that a lot of people were saying the same things and then answer accordingly. Um, And and, and the, the problem with that is that the only real way to solve that is time. Right.
0: And by that time, you've missed a boat.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's further complicated, right, by not just the time issue, but the fact that there's a, there's a tendency in the community now, as you had prefaced your question, right, you said, you know, is, is there ever going to be a consensus? And there's a, there's a, there's a, a tendency in the community to want a consensus, to want to know what the majority says, to want to know, um, you know, uh, who, who are the big names, that have opined on this. And the problem is is that Islamic law doesn't work like that. And it never really has worked like that. Um, there's, It's not necessary to, for example, have the agreement of every single scholar in the world in order for a fatwa to be correct or for it to be um, uh, followable by by anyone who asks a question. It needs, It needs correct facts that it should be based on and it should be grounded in the uh, principles of the Sharia, um, so that that idea of like having to wait for this consensus to form, I believe, has pushed everybody down to like the lowest common denominator, to say, well, we're not going to say anything, or we're going to say what everybody else has said to be safe. Going back to that safety issue, we're gonna, we're going to be safe, and what that's done is that it's it's easy to it's easy to be difficult. <laughs> uh, I mean. Even some of the salaf, like Sufyan, he he said, uh, You know, being difficult, everyone can do that. Everyone's good at doing that. But we seek dispensations from a jurist, right? Someone who's qualified. So, you know, many, many things that kind of play into why certain opinions and even myself I mean back in say 2012 2013 I, w- I even though I was involved in the space I was still extremely sep- skeptical of many of the cryptocurrencies because of the information right Uh that was that was reaching me so it's it it, it is it, it's it was difficult but I don't believe it's a lost cause let's put it th- that way
0: no fair enough Um congratulations i guess is the um, is the calling so i was going to say uh you what i understood from you sheikh is that to to have a fatwa you need clear facts and you need to be able to fathom what you're making a, a fatwa on and in a world where you know you could ask 10 people what the metaverse is you get 10 different answers there you know things are things are relatively blurry in this space because it's new and it's moving very very quickly so I'm going to ask you later I I'll come back to to the question I was about to ask which is okay well what do you do as a muslim who's trying to make money in that context where you can't just wait for a fatwa because you'll be waiting 3 or 4 years and you would have missed the boat so I'll ask that in a few moments but let's um let's go back after after all these years and you've been in the space now mashallah for for the past 10 years clearly you've studied um crypto very very comprehensively what are the main uh Things that scholars argue for and against uh, its halalness, um, so to speak. So, what makes it halal, and what would make some scholars say it's haram?
1: So, as far as those who would say, you know, what makes it haram, their general retort has been that it is something new, uh, the origins of which are unknown that it contains a certain amount of, of uh, uncertainty and a certain amount of, uh, a, a, of, um, of uh, lack of, of knowledge of the issuers and the, the underlying technologies. Uh, and that the, now, then we can go kind of in, t- in two ways. Um, some would say, well, some of them would say, well, as technology, Uh, We can recognize technology, but it can never be currency because according to their medehive Currency has to be hard currency. It has to have an actual tangible form and it has to be something that has intrinsic value Whereas other scholars say no currency can have an intangible form and it can be a uh, It can have extrinsic value meaning the value comes from the, the value that is given to it by people However, it's not being issued by legitimate authorities that are those who should issue currency. Mm. And so it's kind of a combination of, does the, the, do the principles of what's considered mal, or wealth in Islam, apply to this thing? And if it does, when does, that be, when does it go from merely being a, a, an asset that's part of someone's wealth to be an actual currency? And can that currency be electronic or must it be hard currency? Um, And then based on that is kind of where those scholars who would say, so scholars who say that it has to be hard currency, has to be gold or silver or something in hand, even like a representative or a fiat currency, then they would say, well, we're not gonna allow it as a currency. And that's where the the Indonesian Fetbal Council landed they, they actually didn't make cryptocurrencies haram as a digital asset. They said it can, be dig, it can be traded as a digital asset if it has a benefit, and it's known uh, as any asset can be traded, uh, much like you would you know buy and sell a copy of software that's only kept on a hard drive or a shared drive. But it cannot be used as currency because in the Shafi'i school, predominant school in Indonesia, it must have a tangible uh, 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 presence in, in in real life. Um, other scholars said, "Well, it can. It, we don't necessarily have to have a, a tangible presence, but we don't find that it's being issued by uh, known known authorities and known individuals. So there's a level of uncertainty and a level of ignorance about about it." That is uh, un- unsolvable we-, we, w- we won't ever be able to know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, so therefore Bitcoin is impermissible.
0: but doesn't that sound that sounds like counterintuitive because the whole idea of being on the blockchain is that there's communal verification, right and so right. isn't that enough? Like when we look at hadith, for example, if someone goes and fabricates a hadith then it's the community that stands up against that. It's not, there's no kind of hadith authority, is there?
1: You know, that's an excellent analogy. That's an excellent analogy. And you actually touch on something that a lot of later scholars and especially modern researchers have gotten wrong. The power of the authenticity of a a single hadith is not in its isnad even. It's not in the single Isnad, it's in the fact that that Isnad in comparison to all the other Asani is in line with what we know to be the truth as narrated from the Prophet yeah. So we have this, this immense communal kind of you know a, a coalescence of minds that have related this from generation upon generation. And then when somebody pops up and fabricates something, even if they stick the most authentic snad on it, everyone's going to go, that doesn't fit in with the framework that we already have, like this mass of of information. So the, I, I really love that analogy. It's the first time I'm I'm hearing somebody make that comparison. Masha'Allah, but the the, the it, it's it's really good in that it is very much the same thing. So. Um, consensus mechanisms in cryptocurrency, and there's about nine different consensus mechanisms. They essentially verify for you through either work, which is like digital calculate, algorithmic calculations done by computers and chips, or um, uh, and, and it's kind of mined from that, or it's a proof of stake in that you become a member of a community, and through proving your membership in that community and uh, attributing, calculating power to the overall system, you're able to be awarded with cryptocurrency. And through that, there's like a whole consensus that's created that either by proof of work or proof of stake or proof of history um, and in uh, Byzantine structure, there's a, there's a couple of other that have like voting options in them. They essentially prove that this person, who's part of our network, is not a bad actor. They're not. Uh, they're not trying to defraud anyone. They're pro- they're they're pro- providing benefit, and they've been awarded a a, a place a, a, a block from the blockchain, which when it accumulates will become a token, uh, and that token is part of you know either our token system or be, or cryptocurrency or whatever. You know, exists in the in the world of digital assets. Um, that whole thing, right, is is organic. And 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 this is one of the main retorts to those scholars that said, well, the the issuer of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whomever, or whatever it is, right, because like you know, Bitcoin is proof of work. You have to have your computer calculate it. Litecoin the same. Dogecoin the same. Um, you you have to have a node on the network do calculations, and 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 show that you've put in the work, and then you're rewarded this. So, it's the point that I'm making is that the the idea that you have to have a single authority is a a late in well, let me let me rephrase that not rephrase it but let me contextualize it in the history of Islam. When we look at the very first generations of Islam say the, the you know first three to four to five generations of Islam in the history of the the earliest Muslim generations they call it Sadr al awwal the idea that you had to have a single authority issue a mint for currency is late in that period meaning that those same scholars may Allah bless them and, and put Barakah in their knowledge um and are in no way being derogatory to them for their opinion. They base their opinion on whatever information and facts have come to them. But they will often, and this is almost the singular quote that I found through all the through all of the fatawi that have come out. And that is that Al-Imam Ahmed says that it is impermissible to use currency that does not come from the official. Muslim authorities, because if if it was not that ca- it was not the, it was if it was not the case we used their currency, there would be rampant um, fraud and disenfranchisement of, of people's wealth. They say, see, that proves Imam Ahmed thought that currency can only come from the from the legitimate authorities. I mean, and as someone who is committed to the tradition. Uh, if you heard that, what would you say?
0: It's haram, that's it.
1: Yeah, you would say Imam Ahmed, one of the four Imams, he's being quoted by Ibn Muflih, one of the authorities of his madhab. Now I find scholars of other madhab in the modern period quoting that must be right. Problem is, is that on the same page, on the same page of uh, of al that where Ibn Muflih quotes Imam Ahmed, also mentions That Imam Ahmed held that if a legitimate Muslim authority, even though they had issued their own currency, ruled over a group of people who were using the currency of another people, Okay. That the zakat collector would still collect zakat because the people believe that currency to hold value amongst them.
0: So just so I I understand what you're saying, there's um, because really the point, the point that I'm hearing is that it's very complicated. Um, maybe it's very clear in your mind because you studied it really well, mashallah. But it it is complicated. Um, but just before I move back into, you know, uh, what
1: but, 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 I, I, before we go, Yeah, before, before yeah. we go away from the issue of complication, because let me just say this last thing.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: What Imam Ahmed is basically saying is that in a... When you have a number of different governments and a number, number of different coins that are issued and a number of different things that people think have value, the important thing is that a homogenous group of people believes that it has value and they use it as a currency amongst them. And that is in line with what we find all the way back to the life of the Prophet. In that the Prophet, during his lifetime, they would use the dirham. The, even the word in Arabic dirham, it comes from the from the Greek Drachma. The right? It's the, the dinar, right? The, the the gold coin that comes from the Roman, the Latin dinarius, right? So the the the, the the gold and silver coins of the Romans, the Abyssinians, the Sasanians, the Persians were all used at that time. I mean in fact, one of the neat things that you'll find in numismatics when you study like history of coins, you'll find like a coin with like Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, uh, his, his his picture and his and his rule stamped on one side with Illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and on the other side it'll be like a, a cross on an altar. Sometimes they they modify the cross or sometimes they just leave it. Or on the other side would be like Khosru, you know, the the, the the emperor of Persia, because they were just reusing the coins that were in circulation that had value amongst people.
0: The point is that if it's recognized as currency amongst a group of people, then it's currency.
1: Yeah, I mean, even Imam Malik, Imam Malik, I believe this is in al-Mudawana. Uh, uh, he said, "You know, لو اتخذ الناس جلود الإبل, if the people were to go and take the 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 leather of camels and make denominations and cut them into pieces and trade with them, I would I would prohibit riba amongst it and it would would force them to pay zakat, even though the, the camel lever, camel leather doesn't." Doesn't have any intrinsic value beyond beyond it being leather, right?
0: So, so to summarise this point about the halalness and the haramness, the those who are in the haram camp, a either they they don't have the the correct facts um, about cryptocurrency, or they don't know about it enough to be able to make a final judgement, um, or that they've categorised it as currency, and for them, currency needs to have a solid backing um exactly the other um so and so so some some of the scholars have kind of gone around that and say actually you don't need to consider it as a currency just consider it as a digital asset and therefore it has different rules and therefore it's hello um and and the other one around it being um uh created for the black market you just kind of outright wrote that off
1: it, yeah it it, it studies uh, so that's been a very early um, accusation and there have been studies academic studies that have analyzed the blockchains of numerous coins and they have found that not only has it not been used for black market uh, transactions that illegal transactions that have been done on blockchain have made it easier to track and thus, Arrest the people that were guilty of it. I mean, recently there was a a very cringy TikTok star that, along with her boyfriend, that's a banker in New York, um, stole something like you know a, a billion worth of Bitcoin or something, some ridiculously large number, and they were immediately immediately caught. Even though they did a huge elaborate scheme, they were immediately caught. Why? Because the paper trail paper trail is there. So the so the idea, it's like saying I can't use the American dollar because the American dollar is used you know to uh, destabilize governments all around the world, which it is right. But that doesn't mean that I, as an individual, can't earn in dollars and spend dollars and save and invest in dollars.
0: So I want to go back to the humble Muhammad out of 2016, right? Okay, um, who's trying to make money. I'm hustling and going to wait for us to agree on cryptocurrencies or NFTs or whatever. How, how do I navigate this as a simple Muslim um, trying to protect my religion, but absolutely uh, keep with the times uh, and not miss the boat.
1: So, so I'll build on your Hadith example from earlier, because this, this brings back to a memory of when I was studying, studying in Medina. Um, one of my neighbors was a beautiful soul and a, a, an amazing scholar by the name of Nadir Hamul, from Libya. And I used to read Mustalah al-Hadith and we used to read through Fath al-Bari. And in Fath al-Bari, uh, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar will come across narrations that are not found in Sahih al-Bukhari. So Fath al-Bari as an explanation of Bukhari, in his explanation he would say and what Bukhari mentioned actually has a story, and that story is mentioned in the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba. Musannaf Ibn Abi Shayba is a collection of narrations, predominantly from the Companions and the Tabi'in, but some Ahadith as well, that gives a lot more kind of social context to a lot of what was being said. Some of them are str- you know, strong narrations, some of them are weak. Um, I said to him, I said, you know, half of the will mention this narration, and then he'll say, it's Hasan. So like, how do I know? How will, how will I ever know that the narration he mentioned will match the rules of it being hasan? Hmm. And he laughed and he said, I asked this exact same question to Sheikh Mughal bin Hadi al Wadi'i when he was visiting during Hajj something like 10 years ago. And, th- and this was 20 years ago in Medina. And he said, I'm going to tell you what he told me. He told me, trust Al-Hafzah bin Hajar, or learn the rules that are set for this, and then apply it yourself. And the more you learn, the clearer it will become to you until you won't have to second guess it. So pivoting back to the idea of of, uh, us as lay people, and dealing with these types of things. It's imperative that any person that involves themselves in a particular area of business, a particular area of life, understands the rules of it. Um, Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu would prevent prevent people from selling in the marketplace of Medina if they didn't know the basic fiqh of uh, of transactions, uh, because he wanted to prevent uh, people, you know, falling into mistakes and fraud and things like that. And he put, uh, um, he put, you know, uh, Shifa bin Abdullah, radiAllahu anha, as a um, as a judge and a, a, a mediator over the people of the marketplace. Now, I say that to say that if you if you're a common Muslim and all you care about is your prayer and your fasts and you don't have much money, then you need to learn how to pray. You need to learn the rules to pray. Every time you go to pray, you don't go and ask a scholar how to pray. You know the rules to pray. You know what breaks your wudu. If you earn money to the point that you may, that you have enough money for zakat, then you need to learn the rules that apply to zakat, and then you apply those yourself. If you're doing business, you need to understand the rules of doing business, and then you apply those yourself. Only when there's something which is uh, uh, kind of beyond you that we, you would go. One of the problems that we had uh, that we have in the community as a as a As a general level of uh Islamic literacy is that people who have ex- who have extremely high levels of uh, uh, literacy in the sciences and literature and life in general still act like adolescents in their Islamic knowledge and they are extremely hesitant to apply the principles of Islam to their to, to life situations and civil dealings just like they do for their fasting and their hajj and their zakah and their salat and so on and so forth. So going back to, uh, you know, humble Muhammad of 2016, you know, had we met at that time, it would have been, my advice would have been learn the principles of what makes a currency a currency, what, may, you know, what makes business legitimate business. And Be mindful of Allah as much as you're able to. So you're not precluded, you're not precluded, you don't have to go and shut every door and then go and ask someone, should I open it? Should I open it? No, the doors that are open, there's nothing that is clearly haram, right? You're not, the, what you're dealing with as a as a product, as a use case is not clearly haram. There's, there's no clear riba, there's no clear uncertainty, there's no clear little misappropriation of wealth. Then it's permissible for you to deal with that until evidence comes to the contrary. But this this is a, there's a fine line here, right? It doesn't mean do anything that you want and then go and correct it afterwards. It means learn the princi- the general principles that apply, apply them and continue in their application until something until something happens, right? So, you know, get your driver's license to drive the car, then drive wherever you want. Right? Um, Are
0: you saying that it's okay, that the scholars take their time? And rightly so they're risk averse at the beginning with something that's very new, they're going to take their time, it's going to take a decade before you get some sort of um, proper fatwa or uh, consensus at best. Um, And up until that point, you just do your due diligence. Uh, you learn the basics, and off you go.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in we are not an ecclesiastical religion. We we do not need. Uh, we fatwas are not like are not um, papal edicts from Rome. We mm-hmm. we we are we are not bound um, by a single authority. And and this is one of the, this has been one of the problems with group with group fatwa fatwa al-jama'i right fatwa al-jama'i that um, it's been it's been impressed upon people to the point where instead of asking an individual scholar and even sometimes asking more than one scholar right um, it's been impressed upon that if you ask more than one scholar you're fatwa shopping if you don't wait for a consensus. You're doing something that's not safe. When throughout the history of Islam, fatwa has always been a an an edict or an answer specific to the questioner, uh, and so personal responsibility uh, and knowledge of the deen has to be inculcated in each and each and every one of us. Right now, obviously, we may have our own personal doubts, and we can you know we can get. Rid of those doubts by consulting experts and learning more about what we're doing. But if we treated medicine the way that we treat, say, fatwas on cryptocurrency, we would probably never take medicine and we and, and many people would die.
0: Um, you're reminding me of uh, the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, where Prophet was walking past people uh, who were grafting trees. And he said, It's probably best you don't do that. And so they stopped because they took it as a law. And then when the crops started to reduce, um, the Prophet's is like, what happened to your to your harvest? What happened to your crops? And they said, well, you told us not to do that. He said, like, you know, your work much more than I do or words to that effect. So it kind of uh, I don't know how you feel about that. But for me, it's it's like get on with it. Do the best of your ability to to make sure that you're within the lanes of halalness, so long as you you learn that, um, and well, the world is moving too quickly for us to, to wait for a, for an official fatwa. I think.
1: So so you so there's a very good point in that hadith and the hadith of Anas that's in Sahih Muslim, that the Prophet said, "Ma What what if you what would happen if you left it alone? So he didn't actually tell them; he asked the question. Now they took it to be a rhetorical question, right? Okay. Like it's a rhetorical question in that he doesn't want us to do that, right? Um, and in, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ was simply asking about something that they were experts in. Because he was a person of Mecca, and the Mecca was a mercantile center. They were merchants. The people of Medina were people of agriculture. They had farms. They you know, grew dates and herbs and shrubs and that type of thing. So he asked them what, what would happen if you left it alone. And so they did. And then as you mentioned, they didn't get you know a bump crop that year. They came to complain. He said, a'lamu bishuni, bishuni dunyakum. You all have more knowledge of the affairs of your worldly life. Mm-hmm. And so so based on this, there is a there is a there is a level of expertise that is applicable in every situation. That does not need a religious edict. It was not does not need a fatwa in order for it to be okay. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we we don't need to, for example, get a fatwa whether or not we should change the oil in our car. Because we know if we don't change the oil in our car, eventually it's gonna break down. Right? So similarly, this is something which is facts factual, it's empirical, it's uh it's 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 practical and that doesn't need that doesn't need a fatwa. Now, notice in something that that's not simply, not simply an applied science, if you will, right? It's not just taking the facts and applying them to the situation, but it has to do with with uh, social interactions that can be impaired due to lack of clarity. A similar thing, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, the prophet ﷺ came to Medina. He found people selling, doing forward sales of their crops, one or two years in advance. So he said, Whoever sells in advance should do so for a known quantity or a known volume and a known delivery time. So he didn't abro- he didn't uh, abrogate or annul the fact that they could do those types of sales. He didn't have to say, he didn't say, you know, oh, people selling dates, you know, is a permissible. And then selling them in advance is permissible. He mm-hmm. he, he built on the social structures and the, the, the legal structures that were there, but he amended it when there would have caused an impairment and caused, you know, disc, uh, dissent and discord and hatred amongst people by causing conflict because of a lack of clarity on how much, or how little or when those things were being delivered. So, you know, we we, we we build upon, you know, the real world knowledge that we have. And then the shara is the arbiter of disputes that arise after that.
0: So oh, okay. Um, let's just say I'm because you, you coach a lot of Muslims and Muslim businesses around wealth management and protecting their yeah. wealth, etc. So that's that's good. Um, uh, so someone like myself, who is relatively risk averse and I hear the hadith and I hear the hadith of like you know if you're feeding your children uh from from non-halal money then your dua is not accepted if I'm not mistaken you know and that that scares me um so I I am risk averse I am cautious so but I want to invest and I want to make money because I have Lebanese blood you know and uh, (laughs) (laughs) and so tell me then what you would advise a God-fearing Muslim around investing?
1: What I would advise a God-fearing Muslim to do is, first of all, educate yourself on the mechanics of the market that you want to invest in. Um, If we were going to buy a car, we would want to understand what the engine is, how much it's going to cost me, how it's going to run, what the upkeep is, and get the general information about that, that, that car. Similarly, the investment vehicles that you want to invest in, you should at least know enough so that when you do invest in it, you don't later doubt yourself to the point that you feel that you're being ripped off even though you may not be, right? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 one, of the big, one of the big problems that, that I find is that it's not a lack of information, it's not a lack of opportunity, it's not even a lack of aptitude on most people. It's one thing and one thing alone that makes them more risk-averse than anyone else. Can you guess what that is? Tell me, sir. It's fear. It's fear of loss.
0: It's fear
1: of haram. It's fear of of what's new. Right? So we, as human beings, we have an innate sense of fear that's kind of part of our flight-and-flight fight-or-flight response right and so if we fear something we'll run away from it when in reality you know we need to kind of fight a little bit and find out what's going on and fear of haram is is valid but fear of haram where it doesn't exist is gulu it's extremism the Prophet ﷺ said, This faith is eat. And no one will buck this faith except that it will throw him off. I don't know. Do you guys have rodeos there in Australia?
0: No, but I'm sure they have something else.
1: You have a horseback riding and all
0: that? We do that. have the Outback, of course.
1: But, uh, do you guys do like bronco busting?
0: No. have a wild horse? Off we're more likely to have like wild kangaroos and like you know see them fighting
1: the, the, the point being here is the Prophet ﷺ is giving us a, a metaphor for the deen he said this 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 dean is ease but if you try to jump on the back of an animal and, 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 and wrestle it to the ground it will buck you off how do you train an animal which is wild you either are going to grab it and bronco bucket and try and run it into the ground, which is extremely oppressive and very harmful to you. Or you're going to approach it with ease, understand it. You know, this is why, you know, if you've ever seen shows about like horse whispers, people who are so gentle in their approach that horses essentially just kind of tame out of their care for them. Right. So the idea is that metaphor is there. And so when people approach everything as it's being haram, not only... Are they creating difficulty for themselves? They are going against the, the Sunnah of Allah and His messenger in what he has permitted and what they have permitted for us. So you know uh, it is he who has made everything for you in the earth. So everything that is available for us is not so that we can clench our fists back or you know clutch our pearls and say no no no, we can't deal with the life around us. It's for us to explore and to investigate and to learn and to use for our benefit. So that's the number one thing. Like, is there a benefit in this thing that works for me? And then, halal ubayin what haram ubayin. Halal is clear. Haram is clear. The problem with a lot of people in our community is that the haram is clear in the shara, but they conflate the haram in their upbringing, which maybe is. Consider just whatever is shameful, right, or whatever was not part of their culture, with what is unequivocally haram, and people do that for the halal as well, right? So we have to get out of just kind of living on autopilot as Muslims, and really take advantage of you know the um, the dispensations and the allowances and the knowledge that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has sent down for us to be able to benefit from our lives. Uh, the hadith of Umar anhu comes to, to c- comes to mind. You know, why is it that we shorten the prayer now that you know the the disbelievers have been subjugated and we no longer fear for ourselves when we travel, right? Uh, the Prophet said, Indeed Allah loves that you take the dispensations He gave you just as he loves for you to avoid that which he's forbidden for you. So this 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 level of precaution, which is rooted in our own inadequacies and insecurities is against the Shah.
0: Yeah, I think what we often do is yes, Halal is Bayyan and Haram is clear as well. And the gray area in between Instead of kind of learning the basics to navigate through the gray area, we just write off the gray area completely. Exactly,
1: and 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 in the, the remainder of that hadith from from Ibn ibn Bashir you know, mentions that, you know, that uh, it's not they're not known. The gray area is not known by a lot of people. Meaning that there are some people who know it, and you yeah. can become yeah. one of those people that know it if you educate yourself.
0: Fair enough. So then, um, how do I become the crypto whisperer? Then, how do <laughs> I? Um, <laughs> So, uh, you've told me what I need to do in terms of investments in the general a new podcast for you. Crypto okay, Post- fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, uh, I want to get into crypto, right? I probably missed yeah. the boat on a couple of coins. So, what, what would you say is the appropriate process for a Muslim who's getting into the space?
1: So, I would say uh, first, just learn some basics of Fiqr of the of the, the rules of transaction. And I'm not talking about, you know, becoming, uh, you know, you don't have to become the ne- next Mufti taqi Uthmani, right? But you should just know, like, what is considered wealth, what is not considered wealth. How, what, how, how is, you know, what's considered a valid trade versus an invalid trade? And it's quite simple. Um, there's, you know, if, you know essentially four, four or five things that you need to check for. And then from there, if you're going into the crypto world, Understand what, how currencies are supposed to be traded uh, under the Sharia. And that is two very simple, you know, once you've qualified something as a currency, it's two simple rules. Can't trade a currency for the same currency. Can't do gold for gold or, or, or silver for silver or dollar for dollar or Bitcoin for Bitcoin. It has to be one currency for a completely different currency. Hmm. And that trade has to be a spot transaction. In fact, a lot of what we see in the crypto world with all of the volatility and all of the the coins that fail they fail because shut on they they didn't uh, they didn't um, fulfill the rules of of transparent transactions that need to be there or they uh, they they embedded in their systems they started off as decentralized finance systems and they and then they adopted the practices of the conventional finance system with seniorage and interest, you know, derivatives and so on and so forth, which, because of the speed at which the transactions happen, destroyed those those coins and those ecosystems as well. So you know, just learn the basics and and you know and then um, and then start to apply those basics to the coins. I think people will be surprised at how clear it will be that some things are acceptable and how clear it will be that some things either should be avoided due to valid precaution or because they're just clearly, you know, Im- improper to invest in.
0: Okay. Khair. So my final question on the topic then is if my nine-year-old niece came to you and said, I want to become a multimillionaire, inshallah if Allah wills and I want to do it. Um, in halal manner and I want to be mindful of Allah, what do I do? What is your response?
1: Excellent question. I would say if you want to be mindful of Allah, be mindful of your money. Know how much you earn, how much you spend, how much you have left over. Then take that little bit that you have left over and consistently invest it into two things. Invest it into yourself by furthering your education, because the greatest investment and the most money we'll ever make in our life comes from what we primarily do as, uh, as a career. And then secondly, take the, take the bit that's left over and put it into a long-term compounding investment, one that grows in halal you know investments over and over from the time that you're nine years old until you're 21 if you do that, you'll be a millionaire.
0: Jazakallah Khair. Sheikh Joe, um, inshallah, we'll have you again on Double take because there's so much we can talk about with you. Barakallah fiqh, and I'm looking forward to you coming to Sydney so we can do this next one in person, inshallah.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to coming to Sydney. I've never at uh, the farthest. The farthest I've been to that part of the world was Malaysia. And I know that I, I think that's just a, a hop. It's skip, just and a, a jump away.
0: Stones throw away eight hours.
1: Yeah, that's that. For us in Texas, that's nothing. That's uh, a <laughs> that's a drive to the grocery store. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Just let me know, uh, and uh, we'll we'll definitely have to meet up and um, box some kangaroos and eat some camel meat and uh, see the sights. And, and of course,
0: bangers, kangaroo sausages. Really? Um, so I'm uh, I'm not going to let you go uh, too too easily. I'm going to okay. ask you some uh, rapid fire questions, and sure. you have maximum of a few seconds. Okay. If you get the wrong answer, you're going to have to donate a few bitcoins, Shaykh. Um <laughs> Question number one. Kadano or Ripple? Ripple. Who is your favorite Qadat? The reciter of the Quran.
1: Hands down Mahmoud Khalil Hussein.
0: The last book that you were reading.
1: The last book that I was reading is The Qur'anic Phenomenon by Malik bin Nabi. Rahimahullah.
0: Sounds good. What's your favorite dream breakfast?
1: Oh, if, if, so if a classical French breakfast could have a baby with a Lebanese breakfast and a Moroccan breakfast, uh, or have like a, 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 a caravan of breakfasts, I would be very happy.
0: So what would that be like, um? full with snails on top <laughs>
1: <laughs> full, full with snails um oh. yeah, yeah imagine that snail musakan right um, uh, yeah you know you know omelets and eggs and the you know and, and, and you know za'atar and olives and all of the good stuff i mean it's a it, that's a hard throw i would say between lebanese and french that would be like the the, the um the the, the the pinnacle.
0: If you could have dinner with one person who's alive, who would you choose?
1: Dinner with one person who is alive, who would I choose? Man. Oh. That's a that's a hard one.
0: I'll mix it up. What if it was someone who's passed away? Who would you choose? It can't be the Prophet. Salam.
1: Yeah, if it, if, it, if it was somebody who had passed away, it would be
0: uh, Najmuddin Al Tawfi. Who, what, when? Sorry, I have to ask.
1: Najmuddin Al Tawfi was a very enigmatic and eclectic and controversial student of Ibn Taymiyyah who is considered to be one of the masters of Usul and has his own theories about maslaha and um and you know just to give you an idea of like the controversy he's a he's a hanbali that was accused of being a Shia.
0: okay and wow.
1: and so and so he he took chances on tackling issues that people were hesitant to so he has a book on tafsir al-quran called al-isharat al-ilahiyya where he mentions a verse and then he says okay in this verse this is what the this is what the the, uh, the Mu'tazira say about it, and then the ash'aris, and then al Athar, and then the Karamiyyah, and, the, and he mentions all of the Tawa'if about, you know, that say about those verses. And then he gives his own opinion. In Usul al-Fiqh, he kind of does something similar, um, but he, he's from this madrasa of Usul al-Fiqh that doesn't try to make it more difficult than it needs to be, he tries to make it easier. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm just kind of amazed with him as, as a person. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, your favorite go-to product from the Baqala at Islamic University of Medina.
1: <laughs> I know this one directly. So this, so there were these, there were these little cakes that were sold. They called them. It, it was written. It was like they were imported from somewhere in Asia. They were called hoopoi. Okay. And in the in the Americas, specifically in the Caribbean, they make something very similar that they call black eye. And it's essentially a a black eye pea or a bean that is mixed with molasses and kind of you know melted down into a, a pastry mush, and then it's and then it's wrapped in a sweet uh, pastry dough. Um, that was my go-to. That and uh, the the zaddy strawberry leaven, the the you know the strawberry buttermilk uh, drinks that they had while I was there. That was my go-to.
0: I actually know exactly what you're talking about. The black bean paste. I I don't know how you did it, man. Um, (laughs) So your favorite place to travel in the U.S. to talk about Islamic finance.
1: Favorite place to travel in the U.S. to talk about Islamic finance. I'm going to say Southern California.
0: If you had to give someone one piece of advice, um, someone who doesn't have any money or much money, to help them take control of their financial future. What would it be?
1: Create a budget.
0: And uh, the last thing uh, you have produced a lot of resources. You've come across a lot of resources. What's one resource that you'd recommend every one of our listeners? Consume.
1: Um, my book, Simple Cat Guide.
0: Joe, Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much and inshallah see you in sydney as soon as possible
1: my pleasure and i'm really hoping to to make that a reality soon so inshallah we'll, we'll we'll talk offline about that
0: may allah
1: bless you and continue the the great work i really enjoy watching the podcast and i appreciate the work you're doing
0: shukran Salam
1: alaikum.